Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today, and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website, www.exchangechurch.org.au. We're considering one of the most well-known and loved appealing verses of recorded words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. It's love because what Jesus offers and invites people is to find rest in coming to him. Don't we all need some rest? And it's appeal to most people because they recognise that on many occasions they do labour and have many burdens in life. And many love to say these verses because it is true. We are burdened, heavy burdened. Weariness sets in our lives, restlessness. And yet it's also neglected for many today because they don't see the appeal and how it applies to them right now. Jesus is saying, are you burdened? Are you labouring? And if you are then perhaps you haven't really understood the greatness of what I offer. See, this is an invitation to have rest. And it's not just for those who are seeking to have rest, seriously seeking to understand the gospel, but it's all for for those who think that they have rest, when in fact deep down they don't really. So this is a great invitation, also a great command to find rest in your life. And I suggest uh, a couple of questions we want to examine this morning. What does Jesus really mean when he states uh, that we can find rest? Uh, So there's really two questions I want to answer. What is the rest that Jesus speaks about? How must we understand it in the light of our burdens and labours? And what is the way to find this rest, given that we do need it? And there are three things there that Jesus gives us, three important aspects. So firstly, what is the rest that Jesus speaks about here? Now, it's all right to talk about it, but we need to put it in its context of, of that passage. We need to understand it in the context of the whole Bible. So notable New Testament professor Don Carson uh, often would say, I heard him say, in the course of explaining text, he says a text without a context is a pretext or a proof text. That is, it it can be a great problem for many in the church today, reading um, other views of life and writings and then using Bible verses, sort of cherry-picking, appealing texts and seeking to apply them to their understanding of life or their view of God. Really, they need to understand it in its context, the way it's said. Or they use it as a proof text. They gain all these various verses from the Bible to say this is what it's really saying, or what they're saying. Now, when we look at rest in the Bible, it's a great theme that goes all the way through the Bible. There are many great themes, but, and this is one of them. And so uh, when we look at the Bible, we start off in the book of Genesis uh, with God creating the world and everything in it. We're told in Genesis 1 and 2, God created and on six days and then having finished on six days, God rested. 
and he stopped doing that work and he blessed that seventh day and rested and made it holy, set it apart. And he rested and now he rules over the creation, having made mankind the pinnacle of creation in his likeness, we are made in the image of God, to live under his rule and to be also working in the world as we do, six days, and we're reminded in this pattern to rest on a seventh day, or rest, that's the principle. We need to rest and admire and recognise God's sovereignty, God's rule. And everything that enjoys God's rest is under God's rule, under his dominion, under his power, under his sovereignty. Um, That is what we are to be like. We're, We're to enjoy his creation. And we're told in the beginning that man did that. Man uh, mankind um, completely experienced that rest under his mastery, knew the joy of his rest. It says uh, they walked in the, in the garden and um, walked with him. And, uh, but of course, the Bible goes on and says we lost it. In Genesis 3, the problem of the first man and the first woman rejecting God is explained there, seeking to run life his way, not God's way. And what it leads to is hiding from God, running away from God, uh, and it leads to physical death and very much a spiritual death. That is separation from God. And it does seem reasonable and logical, doesn't it? If you don't want to know God, if you don't want to honour God in your life, then you run away from him. You don't want to know him. And God, in the end, what the Bible says, will give you up to that desire. He won't, he won't stop you from doing what you want to do. Uh, and yet, uh, God is all the time calling people to come to him and know him. But the minute we decide that we want to be our own king, our own ruler, our own master, the minute we decide I want to live life my way, the way I want to do it, then we choose to go away from God, which is the choice any person can make at any time. And yet here is this verse in Matthew 11. It's unique. You won't find it in other Gospels. Jesus saying, come to God, come to me and you will find rest, complete rest. And we read on then from Genesis through um, going further into Exodus, the next book, and then into Deuteronomy, we find that the law is given. God gives uh, the people he's called out of darkness and into his light a law to live by, summed up in the Ten Commandments. And uh, these commands uh, basically honour God, love God, and love your neighbour. That's, that's another summary of, of what God gave uh, to people to, to go on the right path. And of course in there, in those Ten Commandments, there's the Fourth Commandment, which we understand is all about the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It's all reminding us that we are to honour God. Don't steal, don't murder, have no other gods before me, but also remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. And it wasn't just for Israel, because Israel in a, it was meant to be the model, it was meant to be the example to other nations around. 
that other nations would see how good it is to live under God's rule and they would want to come too and live under God's rule. But again, there was a failure. And all the time, even though they had those rules and had those guidelines, as it were, um, they rejected God. And so um, that is the problem. All the time, people turning away and wanting to worship other things, wanting to worship other gods, wanting to have their own idols, as it were, and worship them. And so all through the rest of the Old Testament, the prophets and the kings and the wisdom, uh, the wise people, the sages, the wisdom literature, they all speak of calling people back to God and to seek his rest. Now, I just want to give you a couple of examples that will come up here on the screen. And this is typical of what many prophets and kings said uh, and the response of people. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16 and 17, you'll recognise a little phrase in these words that Jesus uses. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, oh, we we will not walk in it. I set a watchman over you like a prophet, saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. You see the pattern? God is calling, but there's a stubborn disobedience all the time. By the, These are the people of God called out of Egypt and gave them this freedom, but they kept on rejecting him. And then Psalm 95. What a great psalm this is, reminding us to worship the Lord. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are his people, the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like they did at Meribah on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in the desert in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. See, rest is the big theme in all the way through. We hear it again and again and yet we see this rebellion going on again and again and the frustration of people who seek some other way apart from God to find rest in their lives. But they don't. And in the New Testament, we also see this same pattern occurring. The religious people of Jesus' day, they said, oh, you're breaking the Sabbath, Jesus. You're doing things not the right way and not the way that Moses commanded us. And what did Jesus say? He said the Sabbath was made for man. In other words, the Sabbath was there to remind us that we're to enjoy God and we're to worship God, not man for the Sabbath, not that we're meant to keep all these rules and forget God. And we could go on and talk in other places all through the New Testament, but let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. The words of Psalm 95 are are unpacked there. You can reject God now and God will also reject you. There's no rest. But you can accept God. You can accept God now, what Hebrews 4 is saying, and you will find rest right now. But then there's also, it goes on and says, and yet 
there is a day reminding us that there will come a day where there will be a greater, more fuller rest that comes to those who strive to enter his rest. In other words, there's, a, there's, there's something more for us, even yet. And that's the big picture, what we see all through the Bible. There'll come a day when God will judge the world and every person. He'll renew the world. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And there'll be no more sin or crying or death because everything will be in right, right with God. All who seek to honour him will be blessed by him. And they will find the rest that's spoken there of in Hebrews 4. And even if they die, they live, you see. They, they, they will have rest for their souls. That word soul in the Greek is a word uh, that also can be called life. They will have rest for their lives, their souls. It's, this, it's the word suke. So, but those who don't seem to honour him, seeking to live apart from him, they won't find rest. And in the last book of the Bible, so we've started at Genesis, we're looking at now Revelation, chapter 14, there's a very stark picture of the end of those who reject God in their, their lives. The wicked have no rest. You've heard of that saying, there's no rest for the wicked. Well, that's what it's saying there in Revelation 14. But for those, even now, even those who die in the Lord, who respect God, who honour God, who die in the Lord, they are blessed. They rest from their labours and their labours because their labours honour Jesus and they are rewarded. The Bible speaks of this getting a grasp on this life. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and not just life, but life, abundant life in John 10.10. 10. And so knowing that's the basic design and, and the plan of God, that we are made to worship God, that we are made to give honour back to God. And when we do, we find rest. We can see that this big picture, how it ties into what Jesus is saying here. Uh, and, and without understanding that, we were much more in the dark about what Jesus is really saying, what the invitation is all about here. But someone might say right now, someone might say right here, but wait a minute, you know, it's okay for you to believe the Bible, Rob, but, you know, um, maybe not for me. I mean, did God really create the world in six days? Come on, you know, all the scientific evidence is sort of, you know, millions of years and all that. You know, it's a bit dated, don't you think, all this sort of ideas, uh, you know, that sort of you, you can read in the Bible about that. I just find it hard to accept, Rob. You know, come on. Um, given there's a scientific and technology advances we've made in our society, uh, we've discovered so much about the world. Some people might be saying that right now. And Christianity has some good things, but, you know, maybe some of those other religious beliefs have got some good things in them too, um, like Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam. You know, is, isn't it a bit relative to you? And, you know, if, if I want to believe about Buddha, you know, can't I do that? What's, what's wrong with that? Um, and, and 
you know, we might hear this little further comment. Uh, these are really nice words of Jesus and I like them. You know, I really like them. You know, I want to find some rest. But, you know, don't you think it's, it's a bit difficult to tie it back to the Old Testament and, and all that back there in Genesis? Don't you think that's a bit silly? You know, look at, look at the church these days. Look at Christy, Christians, you know. that You see these churches being empty and you see the churches declining, you know, the number of Christians in our society declining. And we live in this post-enlightenment, this world where, where you know, you can do what you like and atheism and agnosticism seems to be more prevalent these days and Christianity seems to be waning these days. You know, and now the challenge is, if you hear these things, is to see again the bigger picture you see, to see perhaps you need to say, you know, it's a little bit uh, a myopic thinking here, you know. Have you been to Specsavers lately? Um, I mean, <clears throat> sometimes we, we need some new glasses, you know, every couple of years. Um, you see, when we look at Western society, Western Europe, uh, England perhaps, uh, uh, America and Australia, yes, proportion of Christians has shrunk, but in global terms... The world is becoming more religious. Did you know that? Did you know that? Christianity is the largest and predicted to remain the largest global belief view of people in the world. The forecasted atheism will decline. Did you know that? You know, the ComBank has a slogan or did have a slogan, you know, get with the strength. I don't know about you, but I just find that little fact somewhat encouraging. A comfort. You only have to look at China. Now, they've been in the news lately. Country that's tried hard to force no religion on all its participants. The estimates that while the Christians in that country, the sort of underground church, not the, not the state-sponsored church, but the underground church, maybe 80 or 90 million people. But in five years' time, with a modest growth, might be something like 130 million and in 20 years' time, China will become a majority Christian country. That's the forecast, with maybe 247 million Christians or people. Are they being a bit myopic, short-sighted? You know, others will add, well, I don't think anyone has the right to say they have all the spiritual truth. You know, I've heard that. Are we... We all see something in part. You know, this is a little bit about our uh, pluralistic society. We all see pieces, uh, the relativistic view. Who dares to say they see the whole picture? There's a kind of fun illustration about this. You may have heard it before. It's a group of blind men uh, running into an elephant and they all run into this elephant and they all touch it in various places. So one guy sort of feels the trunk and said, well, this is what the elephant's like. It's long and curvy and all that. The other guy runs into the leg and says, no, it's big and strong and flat. I disagree. It can't be long and curvy. It's big and flat. Another guy grabs hold of its tail and says, no, it's skinny and thin and, and I'm standing near the poo. It smells. And, you know, this, these, these blind men, they, they have an argument. They're all disagreeing about what really the elephant's all about. And um, uh, each one says, no, no, your view's not right. I think I've got it. And as they're arguing, they realise that they're all, in a sense, right, but every one of them is wrong. 
They all have part of reality. They grasp part of it. But no one has seen the whole picture. No one can see the whole picture. And therefore, the argument goes that none of them should say they see the whole picture. They all see part of the reality. Nobody sees the whole. They're partly right and partly wrong. And then the application is that religions are the same. All religions see part of the spiritual truth. Nobody could see the whole thing. Nobody should insist on the whole truth. That's how we ought to understand religions. Now, Leslie Newbigin was a British missionary to India for many years, and he heard this story again and again. And he wrote this book called The Gospel in Pluralistic Society. And one day he was listening to it, and it suddenly hit him. The only way you could know, know that none of the blind men had a grip on the entire reality is if you were seeing it all, the whole elephant. The only way you could tell the story is if you, the narrator, could say, yes, I see it all. You see, and that means, he suddenly realised, the only way you could know that every religion only sees part of the truth is if you assume you see all the truth. It's a, it's a fallacy. See, all religions, to say that, see only part of the truth. You assume that you have the whole truth, which is the very thing that you say nobody has. <laughs> Leslie Newbigin concluded that he realised how incredibly arrogant and imperialistic intellectually is it to say that all religions are equal. And therefore, if you're a secular relativist, you're arrogant. If you're a, a religious person who believes that you're right because of all your good works, you're going to be superior to those that don't have those good works. And, and so on. You know? And for the followers of Jesus, you know, Christians, this is a, just a note on the side, Christians don't claim to be superior, which causes all the fights and the racism and, and the exclusion of others. The only approach that Christians have is to have a humility as they look to others, that they, they are seeking to understand other people's views, but they don't look down on them. They, they, they don't want to say they measure up because they realise that there's only one who does really measure up, one person. Now, the reason that most people don't see it in Christians is because perhaps many Christians don't understand they're saved by grace. You see, understanding God's purposes, his desire for people to honour him, is, is quite important to put it in that context of, of the whole Bible as well as what we're looking at in the passage. So now, what is the way to find rest in Jesus? Well, Jesus gives us three important uh, aspects. He said, come to me, take my yoke in exchange for your yoke and learn from me. Three things. You can't know God unless you come to Jesus, unless you actually accept Jesus for who he is. He could have said, come to God, and he, he perhaps was drawing from Jeremiah's words there. But he said, come to me, because his claim is that he is God. And so this is speaking of putting your trust in him who's revealed God to us that he came amongst us, he came and took on flesh and is fully able to give us what we really need, rest for our lives.
A good way to get hold of this, I think, uh, about the rest and the rest that is much deeper than just physical rest is to think about uh, us sleeping. You know, to get a good sleep, we need REM. You know what REM is? It is um, uh, rapid eye movement. It's that deep sleep. Now, scientists will tell you that's the thing that restores the body. It's not the length of sleep. You can sleep for 10 hours. Some people can. But it's the depth of sleep. It's not how long you sleep. It's whether you get into those periods of deep sleep, the REM. And that's what Jesus gives us, the REM of our souls. Uh, There are all kinds of ways that we can get rid of tensions. You know, we can slow down, we can take deep breaths. You can go for a jog or you can do some relaxation techniques. You can think positive thoughts and you can distract yourself and say, come on, cheer up or stop worrying or get a grip. Uh, And you can read self-help books. You can find pathways um, to have healthy bodies. You can go to counsellors and pastors and psychiatrists and therapists and you can take drugs whether legal or illegal to help reduce your tensions but all those are very shallow ways they won't really give you this REM rest for your soul it is found by just coming to Jesus and some people find that really hard to take all the claims of Jesus in that they could overcome their um, um, problems and their struggles somehow. And it's part of the culture that we live in, that that's the way we want to do. It's, it's all too hard. And, and people may say today, you know, if I could just hear a good, uh, a good argument for why I should believe in Jesus, if I could just get it all compacted into, you know, a, a, um, an airtight sort of, understanding Um, but of course um, you know we need to accept that maybe we don't get that airtight understanding we need to understand that we have an airtight person and uh, you know it's a it's a bit like what Jesus was saying there uh, when he spoke about John the Baptist And he said, you know, a lot of people these days uh, are like these children. They can't make up their mind which game to play. Or they don't like playing that game or they don't like playing that game. Um, They'd neither repent with John or rejoice with Jesus. And in contrast, Jesus sent back the message to John the Baptist, who was in jail, and said, look, the scriptures and the prophecies that were spoken about a thousand years or 800 years back, they're being fulfilled right now. You know, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the kingdom of God is advancing. And there, there is no logic, there's no reasonableness to those people then, back then why they, they couldn't accept it. They should have looked at the evidence And so Jesus goes on and says to these people who were probably from Capernaum and Chorazin and uh, Bethsaida, he said to them, you know, woe to those, all those people in those places because if they had really understood the works, the mighty works that Jesus had done among them, they would have repented. 
because the, the, the very wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, Tyre and Siren, Sidon, they would, have, they would have understood it because they understood how, how far away they were from God. They would have understood much clearly, much quickly, and would have repented. But you people aren't listening. You people aren't understanding what those works point to. The fact that here is God among you. So today, um, many will hear it, and they do. They they want this airtight argument. But Jesus, God has sent Jesus to show us who He is. And, and he mightn't answer, the, the words here in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, mightn't answer specific objections. But if you look at me, if you examine me, if you examine the scriptures, the eyewitnesses' accounts, the four gospels from the pages of scripture, from the witness of those who know him in the here and now, that's the Christians among us, you will have the answers to all your intellectual and reasonable doubts. And more than that, you will find rest for yourselves. You know, in the Old Testament, in the Proverbs, it says, taste and see. You've actually got to, well, you can look at the apple, you can describe the apple, but you've got to actually eat it to taste and see. Come to Jesus. That's what he's saying. Come to understand who I am. Have you done that? Have you really done that? I mean, can you say honestly that you have come to Jesus and you long to know him and you long to, to learn of him? You know, coming to church regularly, making the most of the opportunities and all the means of grace is the way we do it. He doesn't say, put your brain aside, get away from examining my claims. No, he said, use your mind, examine the evidence, come to me and see who I claim to be and what I continue to do. And when you, when you do come to Jesus, you'll see such an amazing life. One who was rejected by many and yet came to the downtrodden, came to the orphans and the widows, the rejects of society, the lonely, the blind, the deaf and the dumb and gave them life. Take a look, I dare you. But don't take a fleeting glance because... Don't say, I know all that. Come and commit to study. Commit to discussing and questioning and reasoning. And say, perhaps say to yourself, I want to spend the next six months examining truly what the Gospels are all about. Come to a Life Explored course. Come to do a Christianity Explained course. But find out. Get hold of and come to Jesus. And without doing that, you become like the storyteller of the blind man with the elephants, sitting in judgment, believing that you know, but not really knowing, because you haven't taken the time to examine Jesus. And the second thing is, take my yoke. Now, two things to note, that we are labouring and we are heavy burdened, but we also yoked. Did you see that in there? All of us have a yoke. The verse doesn't say that we're without a yoke, it's a matter of, what we do with our yoke. <laughs> Jesus said we're all weary and there is a weariness. There is a, 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 a burden. Work is a burden at times. And perhaps this isn't easy to see the first time we read these verses. 
But he says, come to me, all you who labour and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That means we already have one. Yokes, if you know something about yokes, are what you put on animals, ox, horses, maybe people. It's a, perhaps a big stick over your, over your, and you'd use it to mill the grain or plough the field or pull a cart or do something like that. And so there's a sense in which we are yoked already. We're already connected into the world. We need to work. That's a good thing in a way. What are you yoked to, though? Is it what, it's the thing that you're living for. It's often where you spend the most time. It's often where your most affections are. When Jesus is really saying you're already yoked, you need a new yoke, he's saying something profound here. There's something else that you've relied on. Your work is centred on this. You're labouring for this. What is that thing? What is that thing that you're really, you know, it, it, perhaps it's the... the, the way to think about it is if you took that away, what would it do? If you took away your income, if you took away this house, if you took away this situation, what is it that you're enslaved to, you're bound to? If you're yoked to your spouse, now in some sense you are, but I'm saying if the main thing is that you live only for your spouse, it will create an emotional dependence and the very thing you most want, which is your marriage to last, will not bring you rest and satisfaction. If the thing is you're yoked to your children, you'll try to live your life through your children, and they'll either run away for you in hatred, or else you might actually win and you rob them of themselves. Either way, you lose the very thing that you are living for. If you live for the approval of people, and don't we all sometimes, that's the thing you yoke yourself to. It means on the one hand you don't like to give criticism and because you're afraid of upsetting people. And on the other hand, it's hard to take criticism because you feel like I've been disproven. You're, you're being rejected. If the thing you most want is strong relationships and approval, then you need to... The best way to destroy these relationships is never give or take any criticism. And if you live for making money, which a lot of people do these days, you're yoked to creating wealth and you've done that investment and then it's got to go on to another investment and another investment. And even if they are all good investments, they won't bring you rest. If you live for gaining power, yoked to people around you, you know, having servants, I mean, you know, some people have uh, the ability to have servants uh, and you can find that you go, say, go there and do this and do that. But they'll either end up feeling abused and used and not, or not give you the respect and you'll lose your power and there is no rest. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We don't control, we're controlled by the Lord of our lives. Imagine yourself yoked to a horse. <laughs> what would that be like? <laughs> the horse, you can't keep up the horse, never ever. <laughs> the horse is either going to kill you or you're going to kill a horse. Um, therefore, everybody 
whether they're religious or non-religious or they're Jew or they're Gentile, no matter who you are, there's this weariness, there's this burden. And that's the why, you know, in, in some churches there's, there's some disputes. That's why um, people can get so sensitive, why people are so critical of each other. Because they're yoked to something and not to where they can find rest. You know, they're yoked to my parents or their peer group or the church I went to. And they just keep on feeling this restlessness. This, I, I don't feel I'm living up to my own standards. I always feel like I have to prove myself. And these are the labours, the heavy burdens in life. And so Jesus is not just giving us some nice words here. He's saying, come to me and then take my yoke, put aside your yoke and take my yoke because my yoke is light and easy. It won't chafe. It is easy to carry. And so it won't help us when we're facing great trials uh, to yoke to these loves of ours. We need to yoke ourselves to Jesus. And finally, he says, you know, we are to repent of our uh, putting our trust in our good works and, and that's taking off our yoke and we are to take on his yoke and then we're to learn from him. Did you notice that? We are to learn from him. And um, one of the things I suppose is that it's sometimes it's hard uh, to think about what, what we can learn once we accept Jesus. But actually verse 28 goes with verse 29. You can't come to Jesus and then repent and believe and then say it's all done. Discipleship goes with accepting Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And so we need to come to him, take on his yoke, but learn from him. Our failures are taken away from us by Jesus. Jesus accepts us for who we are. And he died the death that we deserve. And he lives so that we can be free from those guilt and condemnation and he gives us his work of righteousness so that we are free from that condemnation, from that guilt and we have to stop doing the things which we think makes us right and accepting what he's done as right. The question is, are we learning? You can only answer that question if you've laid down your burdens with Jesus and go on learning. Now I was reminded uh, yesterday, attending one of my grandson's birthday parties, of the birthday held for me a little while back now when I was a boy in primary school. And some school friends came along to this party, you know, it was all wonderful. I'd never had a birthday party. And um, uh, I really look forward to it. Um, not the thought of obtaining presents, but the fact that other kids were coming to my place and we'd have a great time and, you know, I'd be the centre of attention. That's what I thought. And there'd be lots of fun and games and yummy food. Well, as the party went on, you know, it didn't quite go as I hoped it would. Um, 
there's a sentiment that I had that was expressed in a, in a popular radio song. Some of you will know it. Uh, the words went something like that. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to. I'll cry if I want to. <laughs> in my thinking, birthday parties, yes, were meant for the birthday boy to enjoy, but this birthday boy would not enjoy it unless he won the competitions, unless he gained all the prizes. You see... It took a while for me to learn that um, others were coming to enjoy the party too. And it didn't matter if I didn't win any competition, but we're there to enjoy my birthday. But I wanted to cry. It's really that self-centred idea that we get, that we, we think that we've learned it all. But to learn to enjoy God, that's the challenge. Learn to enjoy his favour. And it's only when we accept his gifts, his undeserved gifts, humbly and thankfully. He said, you know, take my yoke, for I am humble and lowly of heart. And so we learn when we look at Jesus, when we look how humble he is, we look at his amazing life, we look at what he's done for us. We learn. We learn to imitate and walk as he did. And we learn as we come to the scriptures And we ought to read them every day because that's how we learn. We ought to take hold of the means of grace because that's how we learn, the means of grace, coming to church, coming to a small group, home group. That's how we learn, talking about our faith and talking about what it means in the Bible and putting it into the context as we should. And that's how we find rest, deep rest, the REM of our souls. Have you noticed that you can't rest on something that moves? You know, uh, sometimes I'm driving along and Julie's trying to text and she's going to go over a bump. She says, oh, <laughs> you can't do that uh, uh, properly and sometimes until you stop. Are we resting on our relationships? Are we resting on some kind of activity that feels good to you? The only thing where you truly find rest is him. And then you have deep abiding rest. Let me, uh, let me pray. Our Father, we know our weariness at times comes from refusing to lay down our works. Our weariness comes from yoking ourselves to things which through we try to prove ourselves. We see our weariness comes from refusing the only burden and the only yoke that's light and gives us freedom. And we know that day by day you can renew us. You've given us the spirit, the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, to help us because in ourselves we can't do it. And there's a great hope for everyone. For for a person who's just thinking about what it means to be a Christian, Christian or a person who's been at this for many years, this text, this, these, these words, Lord, are life themselves. And I'd pray right now you'd make it life for each one of us in this room. I pray that as we sing, as we meditate, as we think, you would start to show us how our weariness really is a soul weariness, much deeper than we thought and, and, and much deeper than physical or psychological. It's spiritual. 
and how you and you alone can heal it. Lord, show us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au. Also, we love to welcome new people at Exchange Church in person, so consider yourself invited to be with us.